1: Hello, hi and welcome. I'm Emma Gunnar Wardner and you're listening to The Emma Gunn Show. Each week I ask my guests to show me the world through their eyes, learning from their experiences, insights and expertise. If you'd like to watch and listen to this episode ad-free, simply go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now. In this episode, I'm joined by broadcaster, journalist, and author Raphael Rowe, host of the hugely successful Netflix series Inside the World's Toughest Prisons and a man who spent 12 years in prison for crimes he did not commit.
2: I was so, so angry deep within myself because of what was happening to me that my focus was purely, as you said, on getting my convictions overturned, three or four separate victims of the crimes that I was being accused of, standing in the witness box and describing the perpetrators of the crimes against them. And they described two white men and one black man. The three men that were stood in the dock, as you just identified, Were dark-skinned men.
1: I'm really excited for you to hear this episode of the podcast because one of my favourite things about creating the show is getting to have conversations with and see the world through the eyes of people we might not necessarily come into contact with otherwise. Raphael Rowe is one of those people. Journalist, broadcaster, and author, he spent 12 years in prisons for crimes he didn't commit, and not just didn't commit, but there was plenty of evidence to show that he wasn't the perpetrator, and yet a jury still sentenced him to life behind bars. He used those 12 years to learn the law and media, which led to him being able to overturn his conviction and start a hugely successful career in the media. As you'll hear, Raphael is not bitter or twisted by the experience. In fact, although he acknowledges that he has to live with the injustice, his rage no longer engulfs him. You may know him from his Netflix show, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, and I have to admit, I did want to know why he'd ever set foot in one again after his experience. But more importantly, I wanted to understand from him how you can move forward from something like that happening to you, how to find your focus and direction when rage and anger are filling your head, and whether prison really works. Is it the rehabilitation system we're led to believe it is? It's all here. Welcome to the show. A very warm welcome to The Emma Gunn Show, Raphael Rowe. How are you?
2: I'm very well. Thanks for having me on your show. It's Friday morning. It's a bit (laughs) chilly, but it's bright. So good start to the day.
1: It's a very beautiful autumnal Friday morning. There has to, you have to say, it's just gorgeous today.
2: Yeah. And people make of it what they do. Some people are in offices. Some people are working from home. Some people are sitting comfortably having podcast conversations like (laughs) we are, which is great.
1: (laughs) In the, one of the things that I try to do with this podcast is to show listeners the world through other people's eyes. And I think that those quest, those conversations can be so valuable and helpful and informative when the experience and the eyes that you're seeing the world through are things that you just may may never encounter in your own life. And you have what I think is a very unique and wonderful perspective because... Top-line information, you spent 12 years in prison for crimes that you did not commit, for a crime that you did not commit. And I can't even imagine what that must have felt like and how you are this rational human being who sits in front of me today, who is not completely defined by trauma and by rage and injustice.
2: Well, i did have the rage i still live with the injustice um but i turn that negative experience let's say into the positive narrative that i use today to try and as you say bring people into a world that they're unfamiliar with and that world is is prison it's crime it's criminality it's victims it's rehabilitation it's about rethinking how and why we do what we do to punish people, how we punish people, um, why we punish people, what's appropriate punishment, you know, versus rehabilitation, you know, what's humanity in a world where, as you say, people often experience the criminal justice system from a victim's point of view, and that can be at various different levels. But when you get down to the, I think, the nitty gritty, people don't realise that it does touch them in more than just a victimized way, for sure. But you're right, I spent 12 years in prison for crimes crimes I did not commit. And that was for murder and a series of robberies. Um, and I was wrongly convicted when I was 20 years old, spent 12 years in prison fighting to have my convictions overturned and was eventually successful in that campaign um, and was released at the age of 32.
1: And released into a world that was so different from the one that you left, almost sort of like when I was looking at your story, it's like Marty McFly going back to 1955 and coming out and going to the future and there are mobile phones. There were not mobile phones when you went into prison. And when you came out, technology had advanced hugely. Like the, the entire world was communicating in a different way.
2: Technology is just one thing, Emma, and you you learn quite quickly how to adapt to those things, because like anything, because we get new mobile phones or new apps on mobile phones, mm. or this whole invention of podcasts, for example, we start to adapt from radio to podcast. Technology was, it was difficult. There were no mobile phones. You know, I remember when I was in the back of the taxi on the day that I was released from prison and my sisters and my mother handed me a mobile phone and I'd never used one before and didn't know what to do with it. And they giggled and laughed at me and it was slightly embarrassing, but that was the reality. Internet didn't exist. You know, in prison, I didn't have a television. I didn't have a computer. I didn't know what the internet was. You know, all these things were just starting to surface close to when I was being released. So technology was one thing, but it's the psychological and the physical that are the sort of longer lasting effects of of being in prison, rightly or wrongly.
1: Mm. I think one of the things that I wanted to try to understand from you, the thing that I'm most intrigued to understand from you in actual fact, is you found yourself in a physical prison that you didn't deserve to be in and didn't want to be in. And trying to sort of parlay that to listeners, I think, in terms of we can create our own mental prisons. We can have limiting beliefs and we can hold ourselves back and we can lose our way. I think we can become quite negative and quite angry with the world. So sort of the two parallels, but obviously your story represents something of an extreme. And what I found really admirable about your story is that you were in this situation and there was a sense of I'm going to fight this. I am going to prove that I'm innocent and I'm going to beat this. Whereas the other path that you could have gone down is to have become an even worse criminal. That prison environment could have made you, could have turned you into a real piece of work and you could have come out and really hit the crime scene hard. But that was never going to be the destination that you were going to find yourself at
2: no and i think there are a number of reasons for that i think you know as a 20 year old and just prior to being wrongfully arrested and imprisoned i was sort of on the edge of criminality so i was involved in petty crimes and i was socializing in the wrong circles and getting myself into little bits of trouble nothing serious just you know i would describe as petty petty crime you know mixing with the wrong people um In prison, it was a a very different beast, because at the age of 20, when I was confined in a prison cell, I was not just in a prison, I was in a prison within a prison. And almost overnight, this fire that was lit inside me because I'd been wrongly imprisoned um, was my destiny, if you like. It was my determination not to allow what was happening to me to happen to me. And you're right in saying that it could have been quite easy for me to sort of ingrained myself with the prison criminal culture but that was the last thing on my mind you know and watching people who were guilty serving life sentences or who were guilty and were drug addicts and people that you know people would argue deserve to be in prison um, it's a very different reality you know being in prison and watching the people that are in prison as opposed to being outside and looking in and thinking well they've done bad they should be in prison I suppose it was because I was so, so angry deep within myself because of what was happening to me, that my focus was purely, as you said, on getting my convictions overturned, fighting my wrongful convictions. So my mind was focused just on fighting my wrongful convictions. So I had no time for nothing else. Friends, socialization. I mean, I was quite militaristic when I was in prison, and by that I mean Prisoners who are guilty in the years that they're in prison, they will attend anger management courses. They may attend drug therapy programs, or other programs that address their offending behavior, or their, you know, um, mental health issues, or whatever it is that they're addressing in prison. And I didn't partake in any of those kinds of courses, because I was not guilty. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a drug problem, I didn't have a mental health issue, although some of it would have developed in the years that I was in prison because of my wrongful imprisonment. So I was so focused on understanding what was happening to me for years that I had time for nothing else but trying to understand the law, understand the media, trying to get the two entities together to let people know that I was wrongfully in prison. So I didn't have the time or or the inclination, to be fair, to socialise in the circles in prison where you can develop um, skills on becoming a better criminal or becoming um, criminalised. What I will say is... I was so bitter and so angry when I was in the first five, seven years of my life sentence um, that I was volatile. I became more violent than I ever thought I could become. I witnessed a lot of violence during my time in prison. So I was desensitized to some extent by that culture in prison of violence and drugs because I saw it every day. And so that was probably the only legacy of my time in prison that I was quite quickly proud to shake off when I came out of prison. You know, I had to be tough, if you like, to defend myself. I had to stand up for myself. Most of the the conflict that I had was not with other prisoners. It was with the regime. It was with the prison system. It was with the, you know, the authorities that were holding me in prison. Little did I know at the time is that, It was not their responsibility. It was those who put me in prison in the first place for something I didn't do. But it wasn't the prison staff, the people that go to jobs every day in the prison service. You know, I took my anger out on them because they were the only people that confronted me. So that was probably the only legacy of the time that I was in prison. And it went on for for many years.
1: I think you mentioned something there as well that is so, again, wicked smart, is you could have been in there and you could have learned the law. And you could have understood what had gone wrong. You could have formulated a way to argue your case. But you did that at the same time in tandem with media, because there's no point learning all of that if you don't, if you don't have a voice and you can't get that story out. And that really, my friend, is genius.
2: Well, do you know what? When I was sat in my prison cell, I was completely incommunicado and by that I mean you have very little of the outside world coming into prison and as you said at the beginning you know technology moved on in the time that I was in prison, so when I was in prison, there was no television in my cell. There was no toilet. There was no sink. You know, no sanitation. You know, I peed and pooed in a bucket, a sort of chamber pot. And when that was full, I did it in a newspaper and threw it out of the cell window. You know, those were the conditions that I was living in in prison. Equally, I didn't have access to um, radio to listen to what was going on in the outside world. So after about 18 months, um, you you did get papers circulating. Don't get me wrong. You did get newspapers, daily newspapers circulating in the prison. But when it was your turn, you got it. Or if somebody finished reading one, three days later, you might get a three-day-old paper. And so you catch up with the news. But it's old news then because it's three days later. And I wasn't aware at the beginning of the publicity that surrounded my arrest and imprisonment until months and months after I was in prison. And I discovered that, you know, a lot of that media retention at the time played a significant role in my wrongful conviction because when people are reading that I'm a monster, when people are reading that I'm a murderer, they had no sympathy Mm -hmm. for my situation because that's what they deemed me to be, a dangerous murderer who deserved to be in prison. What they didn't know was the Raphael Rowe. They didn't know anything about me. Or who I was or what I was suffering so during those years in prison when I turned my I'd I'd say my mentality around based on the advice I got from older wiser prisoners who themselves had been campaigning for many years to have their own convictions overturned when they stopped me and said you know fighting from the confines of a segregation cell which is even more isolated than a normal prison cell you know if you don't stop fighting the system. No one's going to hear your voice. And so I embarked at one point on a journalism course because I needed, as you say, to get my voice out there. So the media played a significant role in demonizing me. So I knew that the media could play a significant role in telling people that I was wrongfully imprisoned. And so that's why I embarked on this correspondence course to understand the media, to understand how to write letters, to journalists how to get my story published and it worked.
1: Mm. It's um The the media is a very, very interesting thing because right now, uh, I think even a news alert came up yesterday for me. Uh, One of the chief detectives, I think, in the Met has been suspended uh, because they are participating in WhatsApp conversations where they've made racist comments. And I think we're almost a little bit numb to the fact that police are racist. We hear it all the time. You see it all the time coming from news in America and now very much more so over here. And I can't think of an example. Again, when I was reading your story, I thought you were uh, on trial with two other men and all of you were dark-skinned or mixed race. And yet there was an eyewitness report that the people guilty of the crimes that you were found guilty of were white. And yet you still stood up in court. It's not funny. You stood up in court and a jury, even with that information, still sent you to prison. So... For me, it's like, does it get any more obvious how big the problem is?
2: Imagine for a moment that I'm in the dock, I'm being accused of a murder, I know I didn't commit. And the witnesses who came into the witness box, the victims, we're talking about the victims here, we're not talking about eyewitnesses who spotted something and gave some evidence and could have been wrong. We're talking about three or four separate victims of the crimes that I was being accused of standing in the witness box and describing the perpetrators of the crimes against them. And they described two white men and one black man. The three men that were stood in the dock as you just identified, were dark skinned men at the time I had dreadlocks to my shoulder my co-defendant who was darker skinned than me had dreadlocks and the third defendant was of you know much darker appearance with short black hair so when the victims were going in the witness box and telling the jury that the people who committed the crimes against them were two white men and they went further than just describing the colour of the men's skin, they described blue eyes, they described fair hair, and as I just said, I had dreadlocks, I got brown eyes, both my co-defendants had brown eyes. And when those witnesses were given that evidence, not just one but more than one, victims, when they were given those bits of evidence, it was an incredible moment during the court case that they could still, this is the prosecution and the police, could continue to pursue their prosecution against free black men. But we were and are talking about a time where racism hadn't quite hit the headlines that Stephen Lawrence brought it to or cases like Black Lives Matter. You know, this was happening back in 1988. So anybody who thinks it's just starting to happen in America, where social media is allowing people to see the elements of racism, as you just rightly said, from a police officer just this week, and what's been going on in in America. It was happening to me when I was in that prison cell, when I was in that dock, when I was fighting from the confines of an isolation cell, because I never stopped for one day reminding people that the victims didn't get justice and I didn't get justice. Mm. And yet I spent 12 years in prison for a crime that I didn't commit.
1: So is the system completely rotten and is it actually doing any good that it's supposed to do? If the idea is to take bad people, criminals off the street and rehabilitate them so that they go back into the community and they no longer commit crimes, is that a fundamentally broken uh, structure that isn't actually working? I think one of the big
2: problems is that most people believe what they watch in TV dramas, You, you know, this intrepid police officer who has the skills to uncover, you know, the the most trickiest of crimes. I was just watching, um, I think it's Inside Man with David Tennant. It's a fantastic sort of bit of drama. Um, And they've got this prisoner who is a criminologist who's solving crimes from the confines of a prison. So, I mean, it's all mythical. It's all kind of rubbish, really. But people believe that. People want to believe that these are the magic wands that people can wave. And I think it's the same in the criminal justice system. You know, we have ordinary people who are police officers. They are skilled at what they do and they have the tools and the resources to do some of the stuff. But at the end of the day, sometimes, Justice is not about the truth. It wasn't in my case because the truth was two white men and one black man committed the crime, not three black men. So the truth was not what they were seeking. And I think that often gets lost in many cases that mm-hmm. go through the criminal justice system, that it's this adversarial system where it's the prosecution and the defense you know, pitting their wits against each other in this kind of dynamic way where they're not in search of the truth. They're just in search of winning a point about a particular argument that can lead to wrongful convictions or it can lead to people who are guilty getting out of court on, you know, some sort of legal argument. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not guilty or that they're guilty. It's because of the way that our our system is designed And the unfortunate thing is it's mostly geared towards people from marginalized communities. They end up in prison more than anybody else. And that's not me banging the liberal drum. It's just the reality of how unfair our criminal justice system is. And we read these reports every so often, don't we, where somebody of a particular background or class get away with something simply because they are of a particular background or class. Um, And it's not something that I advocate. I think we should have justice and fairness and equality for for everybody, but the system doesn't deliver it in that way.
1: Do you think it does its job at rehabilitation?
2: Prison? Mm. I think, I, I mean, the simple answer is no because rehabilitation really does come down to an individual's interpretation of what rehabilitation means. So if you're, for example, a drug addict, and your crimes on the outside are driven by your dependency on drugs, you're not going to get rehabilitated in prison, you need to address the drug problem. Now in prison, they do provide programs to help individuals who are dependent on drugs to kick their drug habits but you can get drugs in prison so that's a difficult one. I think rehabilitation doesn't work simply because the resources that the government in this country pump into the criminal justice system in particular prisons are allocated in the wrong way and I've seen in my experience traveling around the world and going into other prisons how by reallocating the, the funds To programs that really do work, you can make a difference. I saw this in Cyprus recently. A phenomenal leader, Anna, had taken the decision to reallocate the funding towards rehabilitation rather than other elements of the prison, like security. And she reduced the reoffending rate from 50% down to 15%. Um, And that's because she believed in rehabilitation. She believed in humanizing prisoners. The reason it doesn't work in our country is because if the Daily Mail or the media want to tell us stories about prisoners having PlayStations and televisions in their cell and how outrageous that is, how are people going to believe that that can make a difference to the individual psyche mentality in a prison cell? And as I said at the beginning, you know, I was in a cell without a television. I was in a cell without PlayStations. I was in a cell without a toilet or a sink. So giving somebody a sink or a toilet, giving somebody a PlayStation doesn't make prison any easier. But what it does do is it keeps them connected with the outside world so that they are humanized rather than, you know, reduced to this kind of animal who is banging their heads against walls. So I think rehabilitation will only work when the individual who is the prisoner in prison decides that they want to change. And they're only going to do that if they are shown the right way to change. And that involves resources providing what is necessary.
1: I was struck by another part of your story, actually, that I wanted to, it really feeds into this idea of rehabilitation because you talked about stealing the chocolate bar when you were a kid. You've alluded earlier to the fact that you were on the fringes of crime. There was some petty crime going on. But the chocolate bar that you stole when you were a kid from the shop was about wanting something that you couldn't afford. Your family couldn't afford to give you the money to buy the chocolate bar. So you had it. And that seems like a really obvious sort of starting point, And then it can snowball depending on your circumstances and your advantages and or disadvantages. And it really strikes me that now we live in an age, partly because of just how much social media there is out there, where you are surrounded by what other people have that you don't, that one doesn't. So I can go on social media now and I can see women who have beautiful handbag collections. Now I may not want them, but I'm very aware that they cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And immediately something goes around in my head and thinks, why don't I have that? And that can be happening to anybody of any age, of any circumstance. And I think it, I wonder if it breeds this idea of, well, I, I can't earn it. I can't have it. So I'm going to take it. And so when I was listening to your story, I thought, well, are we encouraging more people to get into this way of thinking? And are we just funneling more people into crime? Because I don't see any uh, inspirational stories of earning it. Or working for it. It almost seems like the inspirational story that we're selling people now is the shortcuts to success. It's not about grafting anymore like it used to be.
2: I think the interesting thing is, and it, it's something we must keep in mind all the time, is that like, I, I grew up in a council estate, you know, where most people were from a working class background, didn't have much money, didn't have much. But not everybody from that council estate ended up in prison or committing crime. Some went on to become very successful in their lives, in whatever it is that they do, whether they're a bricklayer or an entrepreneur running a multimillion pound business. So I would argue that the majority of people who come from marginalised communities, despite the fact that they're poor and they can't afford these hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bags, even now with social media telling them it's the kind of accessory they should have or, or the designer clothes, Um, They don't go out and steal it. They want it, but they can't get it. And then they get depressed by it. And then they just follow people that have it because they live their lives through them on social media. But there are people out there who think it's unfair. Why have they got it? And I don't have it. And I grew up at a time where, you know, television, advertising, advertising was becoming more popular. If you remember, anybody of my age will remember the kind of Levi ads, the kind of dairy milk chocolate ads, people climbing through windows, looking really kind of sexy (laughs) and you know, dropping a bar of chocolate to the lady they love or diamonds are forever. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the bombardment of advertising that makes people think, well, I can get it, but I can't afford it. So I'm going to go and take it. And people do do that. Not everybody, but I agree with you. I think social media... Is, is, is a force for good, but it's also a force for bad because people live their lives in an unreal world and their expectations are that they can have what other people have, but they can't. And I also agree with you in that, you know, people never talk about their journey through the graph that they put in, as you say, Emma, to get them what they want, because things are not cheap. You know, we're living in a really tough time at the moment. Um But but I don't know. Sometimes I think that, you know, you can be content with what you already have. I think you can be, you know, just as successful um, having good health as opposed to having the £100,000 handbag Mm. or the designer jeans. And we all want that. We all like it. But I think there comes a point in life when you reach an age when you think, those things don't matter anymore. And I think the younger generations, and I hesitate to say that because it's also everybody, um, they're told that having the latest designer trainers or being as cool as the idol that they idolize is what they should be aspiring to. Um, And that's wrong.
1: I think another thing that really stood out for me, particularly about you and um, I had, uh, I'm sure you were aware of John McAvoy, Uh, He came on the podcast a couple of years ago and they're both incredible stories of redemption and what is so wonderful about both of them is you could have been defined by the time that you spent in in prison and I think what you do with your podcast is excellent as well. John said something on the podcast that's really stayed with me. It says you can't be it unless you see it, which is so, so true and I think what you do so brilliantly is platform those stories where people perhaps have had a past that would condemn them to be thought of as a bad person or uh, a bad apple in society. And you show that these stories can come good. So you've had uh, people who are in girl gang, women who have been in girl gangs who are now mentors, people who uh, were knife attackers. But like, you, you show that it, this, this is possible. And I think that's what's so important And is it is it important to you to show that just because somebody has this thing that they used to do or that happened to them, it doesn't define them. And there is a way out of there, and there is a way to be really positive and to set an incredible example.
2: Well, I am one of those people. I think we all are to some extent, but sometimes we don't want to admit it because we're all entitled to make mistakes and how you come back from those mistakes depending on how severe they are now if it's because you've committed a crime and ended up in prison if it's because you you know cheated on your husband Whatever that mistake is that people want to judge you for, it shouldn't bar you from becoming the person that you can become once you've learned your lesson or you've discovered more about yourself by educating yourself or understanding and having sympathy or empathy for someone else. So my whole life since I came out of prison has been dedicated, if you like, without purpose in the sense that I didn't set out on this journey. I didn't walk out of prison after 12 years and think, right, this is what I'm going to do. It just gradually evolved around me because I was being judged. When I first joined the BBC, um, within a year of coming out of prison, and I became a reporter on the BBC Radio for Today program with my dreadlocks, my brown skin, my South London accent, and the prison slang to boot, I was being judged. In a way that made me realize who I'd become, it it was a real kind of defining moment for me. And it made me realize that the important thing is to remain true to who I am, to embrace my background rather than try and hide from it, to use my experience to further my career and expose the stories. That people don't want to expose. And, you know, the long story is that's led me to talking to people who do have interesting backgrounds, as you rightly say. Listening to my last podcast, for example, you know, a guy called David Martin Dow, Scottish guy involved in organized crime, drug trafficking, goes to prison. Whilst he's in prison doing a six-year sentence for organized crime, he starts to educate himself. He comes out, he goes to work. All of a sudden, he's now the first team coach and manager of a Premier League Scottish football club. I mean, what an achievement. Hearing his story, Like many of the other people that I invite on my podcast, and I try to avoid having people's stories who we already know about, because we've heard it many, many times. So hearing the ordinary person talk about their extraordinary journey and why they become the person that they have become, why they do what they do, what made them successful, how they were able to shake off the stigma, if you like, and pursue the career or the opportunities that were Were given to them. Those are the voices that I find are are the most interesting because you can learn something from them. Now, whether it's for a mental health issue, whether it's for an illness.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: whether it's for, you know, just getting out of bed one day, hearing somebody who's had a really tough ride through their own making, let's not make excuses. You know, some people, they make their bed, they lie in it, but it's what they do after. And I just think it's really unfair for us to exclude those people from society because, because of the mistake that they made that led to their imprisonment or criminal conviction, you um, And so, yeah, I have been an advocate for those people or given them a platform to share their stories because I think we can learn so much from those individuals. And I think we do, for sure.
1: Because the alternative is that people get written off. And that's it. They're just written off and they're suddenly invaluable. And so what's what's for them then if the perception is that they're of no use, they're of no worth? when actually their stories, as you say, are so valuable.
2: And experience, isn't it? It's It's like anything, if you're gonna try and, when we talk about rehabilitation, if you want to reach a bunch of young guys who think carrying a knife is important, if you haven't carried a knife, used the knife, been cut or stabbed by a knife, I'm not saying that you can't go into that space. And lots of people who don't have those lived experiences do go into that space and they do a lot for those, those kids to try and steer them on the right path. It might be just giving them an opportunity they've never had before, taking them out of their, their kind of environment and showing them another opportunity or another environment. But somebody who has lived that life, like myself, when I go into that space, these kids look at me and they think, well, are you, you know, where have you come from? You know, you're a kind of aging man who talks well and everything. But then I surprise them by telling them because they have no idea. And I'm doing this next week when I turn up at a young offenders institution here in the UK where I volunteer my time for the first time. I'll go along, I'll go into the room and I'll talk to these kids about the scar on my face or the life that I led before I become the person that I am today, hoping that that will make them realise that sitting in a prison cell shouldn't define them, committing a crime shouldn't define them, falling out with their parents or people that they love, that they can't express those emotions or love to shouldn't define them, that they can, they can climb back to the person they could become if only they start to believe in themselves. And by believing in themselves, they've got to start doing something for themselves in that confined space. So I do believe it's important that lived experiences can go a long way to mentoring and, you know, advising and educating those who have no concept of what their life could become without that person standing in front of them and saying, well, look at me, I've done it. And that doesn't just you know, contain itself to prison and prisoners. It can be anything. It could be somebody who's overweight and somebody stands up in a room who looks really fit, male or female, telling that person, look at this picture of me when I was 23 stone. But with determination and commitment, I was able to lose weight, become fit, become healthy, and so can you. So it can work in many different ways, Emma.
1: I agree, and I remember after that conversation with John, and it was during lockdown, and I thought, right, as soon as lockdown is lifted, I want to put myself in the eye line of somebody who doesn't know that my job is available to them. A young person, I would love to put myself in the eye line of kids who don't believe that they could do what I do, I have done in my career, work on magazines because I failed my exams. I didn't do very well at school. I what I was I was told from a very early age, you know, you can't do, you can't go to university and study English because you're not bright enough. And well. Look at me now. So I, w- I would love to be able to do that. And you're right, whether it's about showing someone your journey. If you could give one message to people listening to this podcast, would it be find a way to put yourself in the line of people who don't see what you are so that they can see that it's real?
2: I think that's an important message. Of course it is. How you do that is 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 tricky. Mm. I think the biggest message for me, and it always has been, I think is to be yourself i think what we try to do too often is become the person that we think people think we should be so when you say you know put yourself in the eye line of somebody else it means that they have to model themselves on emma or Raphael and be the journalist that we are or, or the person that we are or look like us or behave like us, what they often forget is that we go to bed and sleep like everybody else. We sit <laughs> on the toilet like everybody else. We live normal lives and have lots of our own challenges. So for me, one of the biggest messages is to find out who you are, what your strengths and passions are, and pursue that. And once you start pursuing that, you will push open doors, or people will open doors for you to give you those opportunities. It's what you do with them. It's what you do with those opportunities, because I would not be here today, having led a successful career had somebody not opened that door for me. And that was a chance moment, you know, standing out, at the back of the television centre at the BBC, where I went to meet somebody, not expecting to then go on and become the journalist that I become. I really didn't. I rocked up at this meeting with this guy who'd interviewed me when I'd been in prison. And we were standing out the back of the television centre, the old BBC television centre, and a very influential editor of the Radio for Today programme was out there at the same time And we started having a conversation and he offered me an opportunity. Come and work for me. Come and have a look at working at the Today programme. Had he not made that decision there and then to give me an opportunity, you know, as I say, this brown guy with dreadlocks who spoke to himself, you know, had he not given me that opportunity at that moment, I would not have been the person that I am today. I don't know what I would have become or what I would have done, um, but it was that one decision and what led from that was a big lesson to me because I thought at that point that I then had to become a Radio for Today reporter. I thought that I had to wear a suit. I thought that I had to behave in a particular way and made a big decision to behave that way and learned a very quick lesson that unless I'm myself, I will not be able to, to pursue the career. And so The first day I turned up at the Today program wearing a suit thinking that's what BBC people do. That's what um, people who are educated do. Um, I didn't realize at that moment that that's not who you are. It's not Mm. who I was. And from that moment on, I've always remained true to myself, my own personality, my own passions, etc. And I've led a successful career as a result.
1: And you said something as well. Uh, I've heard you say before that when other people would join the Today programme, and it was a time in the BBC's history where they were they were real pioneers in this, actually. They were one of the early, I think, big uh, corporates who were very, um, they, what do they call it? There was the equality. There was They were um, very open about inviting more people in. So it wasn't just this white institution. And I've heard you say that other people who might have been different for other reasons, different meaning not the traditional that people knew at the BBC, you would say, well, that's what makes you special. So embrace that. You didn't assimilate. It might have been the reflex to go in and try and wear the suit and do the BBC thing. But actually, what a brilliant lesson to understand about yourself and about your career moving forward is that the thing that you bring to the table that is the most value is you, the uniqueness of you.
2: And that is the strength in all of us, isn't it, really? I think the moment, as I say, you try to replicate Um, the the person that's leading your path you know so if you're interested in undercover journalism you know so my career initially at the BBC evolved a lot around being an undercover journalist and that was for two reasons one I was brave if you like I was You know, capable of taking on these different personalities in a world of criminality, because that's where I specialized in my undercover job. But that was also the BBC exploiting who I was and where I came from and my life experience. But I didn't mind that. I didn't mind that simply because I was also using that exploitation, if you like, that they were exploiting me to further my ability to become a good journalist, to become a good reporter, to understand how to write a script, how to use a bloody computer, how to present myself on television. And this was all part of my my learning, if you like, at at the early stage of me joining the BBC. So it, it was really important that I discovered who I was. And I always advocate that when you come into an environment um, and try to be like somebody else. And I know I'm repeating myself slightly, but when you try and come into an environment and be somebody else and you're not yourself, you can't excel at mm-hmm. what you're good at, you, you, you know. And so embrace your regional accent or whatever your accent is. You know, I, I used to get so frustrated when people came and they were Italian or Spanish or, or something and they didn't speak the Queen's English. And they'd say, I'd never get a chance to be on the radio or on the television because I don't speak The English, and I'm thinking, well, neither do I. And I'm from London, you Mm -hmm. know, but I didn't allow that to stop me. What I did is I made the editors aware that there were lots of people who sounded like me who wanted to hear it how I said it and present it how I presented it. And so that was my guidance, if you like, throughout my career. Don't worry about your appearance. Don't worry about what you sound like. Don't worry about, you know, the tick in your eye. Whatever it is, embrace that and use that as the difference that you can offer the BBC.
1: You mentioned undercover journalism then, and I said to you before we started recording that I find that totally fascinating. I trained as a journalist, but I think more importantly, I grew up at a time when uh, all of the female heroines in movies tended to be journalists and the original obviously is Lois Lane (laughs) Uh, but like Kate Hudson like all of the big 90s rom-coms it was always the lead female was always a journalist always worked for a glossy magazine so I was like I want to do that that was my version of if you can see it you can be it undercover journalism has always seemed to me well, it's always the thing that I'm fascinated by, but I'm way too chicken to do. There's no way. I couldn't pull it off. I'm an assimilator; It's not going to happen. So I'm really curious about what that is like, because the stakes are so high. It seems like so much jeopardy. So how do you approach it? And what was the first one that you did? And was it terrifying or did was it utterly invigorating?
2: The first thing I will say about being an undercover journalist is that you know, it's a lonely existence. You you are, you, you know, I had the skill because I'd spent so many years on my own in a prison cell. So I developed this kind of ability to be alone. I, mm. I developed this ability and this skill to, you, you know, enjoy my own company because as an undercover journalist, you spend a lot of time on your own. Otherwise you blow your cover if you're in contact with too many people. The first undercover story I did was very daring and very dangerous. And it involved me traveling to Sierra Leone as an undercover diamond trader. So I went to Sierra Leone to expose the diamond trade. So at the time, um, one of the UK's top artists, Miss Dynamite, was singing about the bling and the bling on our rings. You know, it was a popular kind of cultural thing. And lots of kids were aspiring to these diamonds, you know, wanting to have the bling around their neck or in their cars. And so that was the rage at the time. What people didn't realize is that that bling, those diamonds were coming from conflict zones like Sierra Leone. So my mission was to go to Sierra Leone as an undercover diamond trader, buy the diamonds on the black market, bring those diamonds back to the UK to Hatton Garden where we have our diamond trade and see if I could sell these unlicensed, uncertified diamonds, To responsible diamond traders. And so that's what I did. I went undercover. I went to Sierra Leone. I pretended to be a diamond dealer. I was in the company of people who were so dangerous. On one occasion, I was secretly filming the exchange that I was having with a diamond dealer. Um, And, you know, he was saying to me, I used to smuggle one million diamonds a week. And he was probably the most wanted man on earth at the time he was in Lebanon so I'd left Sierra Leone gone to Lebanon but on the occasion that I bought the diamonds in Sierra Leone I've gone back to my hotel room just made the the transaction and then there was a knock on my door a few hours later nobody knew I was in that room and I opened the door and there were two guys there demanding that I buy diamonds from them that they knew that I was there and that I buy diamonds from them or that they were coming back And they left my room and I contacted my handler and my producer who was in another location and said, we have to get out of this. We actually flew out of the hotel, got in our car, drove out of Freetown, which is where we were at the time, to a sort of um, sort of airport space, got in a helicopter and had to flee the area because people had now become aware that I was there buying diamonds. So that was the first job I did. And I smuggled those diamonds. So I bought the diamonds as an undercover diamond trader. I smuggled those diamonds back to the United Kingdom, and I've never revealed how I smuggled those diamonds. But I got them back to the United Kingdom. I then secretly recorded my conversations with dealers in Hatton Garden. All of them were prepared to buy these little black stones because these are not diamonds that had already been cut and polished and the things that you put in rings. These were the black stones that come straight out of the mines, you know, that were not valuable. But once they were polished and Mm -hmm. clean, they become very valuable stones. And everybody in Hatton Garden that I took these diamonds to were prepared to buy these diamonds. So it was was a success in the sense that I survived. It was a success in that I exposed the trade in diamonds and this whole idea that things like that should be certified in order to protect the vulnerable people back in places like Sierra Leone. But I've done a lot of undercover um, stories um, until I became a little bit too well-known and it become mm. even more risky because people started to recognize me and, and that made it all the more yeah. dangerous even when I grew a beard and wore a cap.
1: That just, even the whole time you were telling that story, I was clenched and just really <laughs> tense because that just sounds, I can just imagine being in the car and just feeling like, you know, when you walk down a dark corridor and you feel like something's behind you, <laughs> just imagine just, just the, having this feeling of just having to flee. Um, it's not like any journalism I've ever done. <laughs> so uh, more respect for you. Now, let's talk about what you're doing now, because having spent 12 years in prison for, uh, for crimes that you did not commit, uh, you go into prisons, which part of me would think you would not want to ever cross the threshold of a prison ever again. But... Not only do you do that, but you do it extremely well and you are uh, showing, particularly in this new series, the toughest prisons. What prompted you to go down that avenue? Because it's something that obviously is hugely successful now and lots of people watch it.
2: It is very successful, actually, phenomenally. And and it really surprises me um, because it is about prisons. And although people are fascinated with, with true crime, you know, people often go to prison shows because they're already in that stuff, but we've, I think, generated a whole new sort of interest um, and Netflix being the platform that it is, it's a global interest. The reason I do it, Emma, is because when I was in prison, when I was confined to a prison cell, when I was trying to get my voice out there, admittedly as an innocent man, as opposed to a guilty man, nobody heard me. When I was beaten by prison guards and placed naked in an isolation cell, no one saw me. When I was not being fed properly or when I was being denied my right as a human being in prison to go to the toilet, you know, not being allowed out of my cell at a particular time to sit on the toilet and relieve myself, not being able to communicate with my family because a prison officer decided to rip up the letter that I was writing to my mother because we didn't have emails, we didn't have the internet, and then my mum didn't get that emotional letter from me or an important piece of communication. So during my time in prison, there were lots of things that I experienced that people didn't and wouldn't be aware of. People didn't see, people didn't hear the things that I heard and the things that I witnessed. And so for me, going back into prison after spending so many years of my life wrongly confined was important because I knew that if I could do it the way that I wanted to do it, which is not sensationalising prison, not glorifying criminals, not glorifying people's crimes, not just focusing on the violence or the drugs or the, the bad things that we already know about in prison, But the humanity, the individuals who made the mistakes or did the horrible things that they did, who are they? Why did they do it? Are the conditions that they're in um, humane? Should they be humane? What do you think? Should we lock somebody up, throw away the key and forget about them? You know, should we uh, punish people in prison that have been sent to prison for punishment? So that's why I decided to to embark on doing this Netflix series because I wanted to change the narrative, open the conversation about whether the money being spent from taxpayers, and there's always that argument, is being well spent and whether we are treating the most vulnerable because most prisoners are not murderers and rapists and the sorts of people that we would demonize. Most people come from poor economic backgrounds and they do what they do because of their social cultural environment. And I just wanted to give prisons, as in the prison structures, a voice, i.e. show people the conditions, the crumbling conditions, the lack of investment, the, the, the lack of opportunity around rehabilitation, which is one of the conversations we started, but also to hear the impact it has on individuals who are in prison, whether they are changing, whether prison and the money being spent in the name of people all over the globe is being spent in the right way, whether it is going to prevent the most important thing, that individual coming out of prison and committing another crime. So my purpose for going back into prison and making this series for Netflix, which has been, as you say, a phenomenal success, is to show people what they don't see, the reality. And I know there are lots of other prison programs, but I tend to feel... Many of them sensationalize the things that we want to sensationalize. And although the title Inside the World's Toughest Prisons <laughs> sounds very sexy and raw, a lot <laughs> of it is very thoughtful, you know, because the key is the balance between security containing someone and rehabilitation, what you do with them when they're in prison.
1: You're a journalist. You know how important a headline is to get people to actually read those first two pars. Inside the World's Toughest Prisons is perfect. It um, is. <laughs> What has been, during the filming of the show, what has been the thing that has impacted you the most that you perhaps didn't even know yourself having even been in the system?
2: I think during my time in British prisons, I used to think that the conditions were appalling, especially, you know, not having a toilet and a sink. Now they've got toilets and sinks in most prisons, not all prisons in Britain. And, you know, the, the behaviour, the conflict between prison officers and prisoners, um, you, you know, the deprivation of all the things that we take for granted, you know, and I, I bang on about this one particular kind of conditioning, and it is, on the inside of a cell door, you don't have a handle. You can't reach for that handle, open that door and let yourself out. So when people were like in prison or the lockdown period that we all suffered from, um, where they felt like it was a prison, being in a prison. And I do understand, you know, the challenges people faced during that time. But they always had a handle on the inside of the door and could leave the bedroom or they could open their front door and walk out. In prison, you can't. We could make choices. We could order Tesco's and have a mm. delivery because they were still functioning. But in prison, you can't. You know, you don't have visitors. So there's lots of things that are very, very different in prison, which I'm sure people understand. I think going back into the very many prisons that I've been to in this Netflix series, it's the, the humanity of the individuals that I meet that impacts me the most. The the You know, the people that we deem to be the most horrible. And there are... Horrible, horrible stories. You know, I've sat down in the company of, you know, multiple murderers who have committed the most horrendous crimes. You know, these are serial killers. I've sat down and spoken to people who are the worst sort of sexual predators you could ever imagine. And having to listen to their story, having to listen to them show no remorse, does have an impact, you know, emotionally and personally. I am human, you know, and as much as I've heard it many times, when I hear a man tell me something horrible that he's done, I can't help but be impacted by that. I'm very professional in that I can leave it behind when I come out of prison. Some of it will live with me. And and, and also the conditions, you know, I didn't realise... When I started out on this journey, how bad the conditions are in many prisons around the world and how there is a lack of any rehabilitation, how there is so much violence in some prisons when these are places where you're supposed to be changing people's lives, protecting future victims. That's had the the biggest impact on me, which is why I set up the Raphael Rowe Foundation, because it was one thing at the beginning going into these prisons and documenting what it's like, because that was what was important to me because people didn't know what it was like. But after three or four prisons coming out and thinking, great, we made a good program there, we've informed people, I was still left with this kind of emptiness that that is really bad. You you can't have people locked up in prison and not feed them. You can't have people locked up in prison and there's no electricity where they've got no lights or it's just so bad. That is not about prisoners. That's not about the crimes that they committed. This is about humanity. This is about human rights. This is about basic needs. This is about, you know, rethinking and rehumanizing people, which is why I decided to set up the Rafael Roe Foundation, which now goes back into prisons and tries to improve those conditions in order for the staff to do the job that they feel is important. And that is rehabilitating prisoners.
1: And so how can listeners support the foundation if they want? Is there a way to get involved or support it?
2: Well, they can go to the Raphael Rowe Foundation website, and they can sign up to offer their services, their expertise, they can donate to the foundation, if they are in one of the countries that we are focusing our priorities on, they may want to volunteer to help us do the work that we're doing in these prisons. If they have a skill set, you know, they may be a drug therapist, they may, may be a psychologist, if they want to offer their services in countries where they don't have these kinds of programs and training. In in prison, then surely that is something that they can do. So it really is about going to our website, the Raphael Rowe Foundation website, and signing up, and we will find something for them to do for sure. But financial support is always the big one for any charity.
1: Uh, listeners, I'll put the link in the show notes. So uh, as we draw to the end of our time together, I, I, my final question, and I hope this isn't too clunky, because uh, when I was thinking, when I was trying to formulate it in my head, um obviously the fact that you spent 12 years in prison is not a great thing at all it's it was an injustice but I wanted to find out about whether you have been able to make peace with it or uh because we talked right at the top of the show about how you are not just this knotted human of trauma and and rage and you aren't and I Is it as simple as being able to say, well, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am now. How have you been able to, yes, I suppose, reach that place of calm, make peace with what happened? Have you made peace?
2: I would never forgive those who took my life away from me. You know, I could have ended up in a really bad place at the age of 21 or 22 um, on the outside had had I not been wrongly convicted. Um, I ended up in a, a prison within a prison at the age of 21 and 22. Um, so that was also a bad place. So I would never forgive the people who told lies that led to my wrongful conviction. I would never forgive the the, the the people, including the police and the prosecution, who knew that I was innocent, but still pursued this 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 conviction against me. I would never forgive those people mm. um, for what they did, knowing that they were putting an innocent man in prison. That That's unequivocal. You know, I'm mm. not ever going to forgive those people, even if, you know, they said sorry to me 10 times. No, I'm not going to forgive them. So I'm at peace with that. You know, people said you must forgive in order to move on. No, I'm not going to forgive, but I have moved on. Mm. I'm at peace with myself because I've been able to find love. I've been able to trust again. The day I was released from prison, i.e. the last time I walked through a door that didn't have a handle on the inside, I was able to fall into the arms of my sister, who was my biggest campaigner and cry for the first time in 12 years. And at that moment, at that very moment, all the stress, the anger, the bitterness, the rage in me almost lifted from me. And so I was able to then engage with people again and start to build, as I say, the love and the trust. Don't get me wrong. It was difficult. I couldn't sleep in a bed alongside someone for a very long time because I'd slept in a single bed up against the wall for many years. And I bang on about that because it's part of the conditioning that prison does to you. Um, But my career has been the distraction, seeing other people suffer in a different way. These are not people that have been in prison. These may be people that have lost a child through knife crime Mm. or that have fallen ill and have to deal with their own traumas. Listening to to the harrowing stories, as well as the inspirational and motivational stories that I've heard from people along my way as a journalist has made me put my own predicament and situation into perspective. And it's inspired me to say, actually, I'm going to take my experience and use it for good. And that's what I've done. And I think that's what gives me peace. But more importantly, I am free to do what I want when I want. I can make the decision about baked beans or happy shopping, you know, things like the bar of chocolate. I can buy it now. I don't need to worry about it. I I I'm just I'm just in a content place because I know myself, I know my passion, I know what I want to do, I know what I want to achieve, and I and I go for it. And that's what settles me every day. You 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 know, when when I'm feeling The challenge or the stress, I think to myself, you know, that time when you were bloodied and bruised in a segregation cell where no one knew what was happening to you. Well, now you can tell people what's happening. So don't feel so bad. So I've been in a place so dark, so horrible. And even though it was a long time ago, I can still draw on that today. And I encourage everybody to use that as their own inspiration. You know, we often I often say to people, think of the biggest stress you had this time last year. And they scratch their head and they can't remember it. Yet at the time, mm. it was probably the most challenging thing that they could ever think of. But a year later, they can't even remember what it was within reason, obviously. So I'm in a good place for sure.
1: I can tell and it's been such an honour to have this conversation with you. I honestly have um, really learned so much and I am so delighted that to have shared this with listeners because I think that you have just so much wisdom to share and I'm sure this will be really impactful and really resonate with a lot of people. So thank you so much for your time. I will put the link to your book, your podcast, your hugely successful television show that at the time of recording is in the top 10 most viewed programs on Netflix here in the UK and Ireland. So congratulations on and that. And
2: around the world. I mean yes. top 10. So it's 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 in the I mean this is what's phenomenal about this show. It I, I was sent a message from Netflix the other day that said you know we're in the top 10 you're at number 10 globally so you know you have dramas and films one two three four five six seven eight nine and the only reality program or unscripted documentary is inside the world's toughest prison so globally on the global scale so we're in the top 10 in various countries around the world five four three two one but to be top 10 on the global hit list of the Netflix platform is quite an achievement actually and what that says to me Emma just one final thing what that says to me is that people do care about humanity they are rethinking what prison is for they are kind of wanting to rehumanize and they are thinking about reintegration so those are my three kind of big points that people do care about these issues and that inspires me.
1: It's wonderful. And I'll also obviously put the link in the show notes to your social media so people can go and follow you. But thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so open and honest. And I'm sure I could have chatted to you about four hours, particularly about your undercover journalism, because that's <laughs> That's too. another
2: conversation at we'll another time. That.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, but thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you for having me on, Emma. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for listening. Why not become a patron of The Emma Gunn Show today? For just £3 a month, you can enjoy episodes of the podcast ad-free and in video. That's just £3 less than a cup of coffee for a whole month of the show. Your support means I can keep creating the podcast and also invest in production and creation of bonus content for you to enjoy. To become a patron, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now.